Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Well, we've had a, another exciting week of articles and information and things happening. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, with Jim Petrosky and Curtis McGiffin back on the Nuclear View to talk about, in particular, there was an article written that you brought to light, Curtis, and that appeared in Foreign Affairs, written by Michael Mazar, that discussed whether the United States still needs Europe. And so some of our listeners may have already seen that article, but it posited the question, do we still need Europe and should we dump our NATO alliance, or as some would suggest, in order to focus on the Indo-Pacific? So I am definitely curious to know what you thought about Mazar's article and about the larger idea that the United States either focuses on Europe and sort of you know, keeps the plates spinning in Asia or vice versa. Can we, can, do we have to do it that way? Can we only focus on one? You know, what, what's your take on this, Curtis? Well, thanks Adam. And uh, good to see you, Jim. Uh, Welcome all to the uh, nuclear view here. Um, Yeah. I I picked this article out because it was particularly interesting to me. uh, One, because, you know, I, I, I know Dr. Mazar, I think he's a, very smart individual. He works for Rand, uh, and um, I, I, as a full disclosure, I invited him onto the podcast. I did not get a response. Uh, I think it was just too short notice. Uh, maybe we'll have him on another time uh, to to comment on this and other things that he's written. He's a prolific writer, a deterrence thinker, uh, and and so I, I found this piece to be a bit uh, not only interesting but a little puzzling. Uh, and and for our, our our, our viewers who might be interested in it again, why America still needs Europe, the false promise of an Asia first approach. And this article came out on the 17th of April, 2023. And I would, uh, I, I think just to uh, uh, introduce just the overall concept uh, is uh, Dr. Mazar brings out the, the, the point that, that there are a lot of folks out there uh, uh, that are, advocating that we are doing too much in Europe, specifically to the Ukraine uh, and other areas, and that we need to be preparing for the oncoming uh, China-Taiwan scenario. And it's time to move forward, as he refers to those as China hawks, uh, who are are interested in preparing for those, uh, for that that eventuality. and, uh, and, and hey, I, Curtis, I think the, yeah, I, I think the, the proper academic term for that is the, there are the China huggers and the China or the panda huggers, the panda huggers yes. and the panda sluggers. Yes. So it's one so, or the other. Yes. I gotcha. And he calls them China hawks and maybe you could call them China doves. Uh, uh, in any case, um, um, it, it is that the point of it is, is that we, we almost have to. To, to that there are those out there who believe that we need to actually pull everything out of Europe, even to the point of leaving NATO, in order to husband our forces and be able to deal with 
um, with the, the vast Indo-Pacific uh, orientation, the, the, the large lines of communication that are both maritime and air, and, and, and what that demand is going to be uh, on, the, um, on the U.S. and, and, and their allies. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I just, I, I, I have a, a challenge to the, to the, uh, to the idea that we can't do both, uh, that we can't walk and chew gum in the geopolitical spectrum here. Uh, and in fact, the answer is we have to do both, right? We can't not be in Europe, uh, for any reason. We're not ever going to leave NATO. We've had, we've had senior leaders in the past that have hinted that NATO may be obsolete, um, and uh, we have now proven that it's it's not right uh, uh, in the sense of the Article Five. In fact, it's uh, so appropriate that we've just acquired uh, one and maybe two more uh, new members in Finland and possibly Sweden. Um, I haven't seen any NATO members uh, demand to leave NATO at this point because of their uh, of their dis, uh, uh, dissatisfaction with with that security arrangement. Uh, so uh, I, I think it would be uh, silly for us to say that we cannot provide um, our NATO contingent support uh, as well as uh, uh, posture and, uh, if you will, deploy forces in order to ensure a deterrent uh, uh, effect is created in the in the Indo-Pacific. In fact, uh, just here recently, Admiral Aquilino, the uh, CPAC fleet commander, I think, uh, recently testified to Congress and said that, you know, he, he doesn't uh, he doesn't think that war is imminent um, in in the Indo-Pacific, but that it's his mission, you know, it's his mission to deter. So for I think it's fair for a, a combatant commander or 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 if you will, uh, the CPAC fleet commander in this case to say, well, I'm not going to predict when my deterrence is going to fail. <laughs> by saying this is when the war is going to start. Uh, but I'm going to uh, tell you that uh, there are great risks. And if we're not careful, uh, deterrence might fail. Uh, and I think that's where we sort of paper over the crux of this problem, which is if we don't do certain things, deterrence might fail. And that is a big thing. That's a lot of stuff that we need to do and prepare for, procure, train, message and indeed increase our credibility if we in fact want to avoid or avert war in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and so uh, I'm not sure that that means we have to redeploy everything we have in Europe and abandon allies uh, in Europe in order to uh, to somehow keep the peace uh, in, in Europe. I will note in this article here, and then I'm going to pass it over uh, to Jim, uh, that it's cited here that the European defense, I'm sorry, the European deterrence initiative programs that the U.S., essentially the amount of money that the U.S. spends uh, to support NATO is upwards of $36 billion a year in our defense spending. Uh, you know, and he says 6% of the defense budget, a mere 6% that we should be spending all the time. And I'm not discounting or or disagreeing with that. But that's the same amount of money that it costs to run the nuclear enterprise. 
the deterrent that we do have. And yet that still consistently has a fight that that's too much money to spend. That that 6% is too much, but the other 6% is just fine. And so these sorts of, in my mind, these sorts of these kind of a oxymoronic or hypocrisy laden statements are a bit unnerving to me. Jim. Yeah. Well, thanks Adam. Yeah. And for those that, you know, remember I'm the technical guy on the group. I don't normally get involved in uh, international discussions, but I, um, I'll have to say I, I, I read this article and I thank Curtis for finding it. And I applaud uh, Dr. Mazar for writing it because I think there's a lot here for consideration uh, in terms of our international relations uh, with uh, with Europe and also in this new position or relatively new position we are in which we have really three near peer competitors and how to thwart or how to uh, deter war when you have the three playing against each other. And I just want to remind people, you know, there was a trilateral agreement a long time ago that was supposed to you know, keep people from from uh, starting a war and it actually led us into a war a long time ago. And uh, so you got to be careful where things land. Of course, we don't have an agreement, if you will. We didn't choose to have three near peers. I'm just uh, laying that out that, uh, you know, sometimes things, uh, uh, options don't always present themselves the way you want to. So let me, let me uh, dissect a little bit of uh, what I saw in this article that really caught my attention. And I think the first is that there is a, um, I think this is a false option. Uh, the false option, I always hate getting false options. And so the false option is, well, we either do one or the other. We can't do both. And I think that option is not true. Now, I, I look back and I, I see some of the arguments that are made that Curtis brought up regarding the finances in, in Europe and finances with NATO. And I do think that NATO bears a, a, a large majority, you know, a majority of its its defense, but that doesn't mean the U.S. is not a player. I think they are players too in NATO. They obviously have a reason to be interested in funding NATO as an alliance and doing their part in defense as part of that alliance. And the United States has a substantial interest as well from a national security standpoint. But just because those tensions may arise in NATO doesn't mean we don't have a need or we don't get an effect from NATO. So that's the first part about that false option. I'll say the second part of the false option or the, the other thing I caught from this, and it comes back from our last episode in the nuclear view. And that is that I, you know, I like to look at this from a chess standpoint, because we all know the, you know, especially when Russia gets involved, they're, you know, they're, they're noted as chess players and what's the strategy here. But it seems like a, a view of removing ourselves from NATO might be exactly the reaction that Putin is looking for in his interactions with China. After all, they've just simply discussed some mutual agreements. Nothing's been laid on the table. And certainly, um, if our response, and we continue to respond to these aggressive actions from both Vladimir Putin and from China, if we are in a response mode, then we aren't controlling what's happening. And so I want, I want to put us in the position where we're not responding, but rather we're def deciding how this is going to lay out. 
And deciding how this lays out, I think, involves our alliances with people in the NATO alliance, as well as uh, the, you know, the, um, oh, uh, I, 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 I'm a loss for words, uh, the, the uh, Indo, uh, Indo-PACOM. Indo, Indo-PACOM, thank you. Yeah, the Indo-PACOM uh, relationship, we have to basically foster and build that as well. So it actually gives us an opportunity to do that and split those interests. And then my last piece, because we talk about costs, I just want to remind people, every time we've pulled out of a region and then it has gone the wrong way, it's cost us more to return to that region. And it cost us more, not only in real dollars, but in lives lost and time lost and credibility lost. And all three of those are here on the line if we talk about moving out of NATO. And so I sincerely think that that is the piece that sort of comes out of this article that I like, that I drew from it. And so I'd be interested in what Adam and and Curtis think about this from those standpoints. So back to you, Adam, or or Curtis. To be honest with you, I think we're not even, we're, we're still on the wrong track because we're not thinking about the more fundamental issues at hand. And that is that for any great power to be successful, it has to have two things. It has to have a strong economy and then it has to have a strong military because if it, it, if it can deter or defeat from without, it can succeed within and great powers and empires always collapse from within and one of the things that we've seen, you know, if you look at the history of Rome, Rome collapsed from within, which then allowed, you know, in Germans to, uh, you know, Goths and Visigoths to invade and take over uh, the, the Roman Empire. And you had a point in which R- Romans would not fight in the legions. So therefore, most of your soldiers were were gods and Visigoths. And I think in some respects, the United States is is sort of reaching that point where we care more about wine and games than we do about ensuring the prosperity of the nation. And I say that because if you think about how much, you know, we spend as a nation. So the federal budget this year was $6.37 trillion dollars. The U.S. collected about $5 trillion in taxes. So we borrowed about $1.3 trillion. We borrowed it from the Federal Reserve. That largely drove inflation. But we, we still collected 20% of gross domestic product, and that's what federal taxes were. Then if you look at state and local taxes, that was another about $5 trillion. So government in the United States consumed about 40 cents out of every dollar made by Americans. And then how did we spend it? Well, we spent 80% of it on primarily transfer programs. And so if you think about the Defense Department's budget, which was about, you know, 18% of federal spending, we're now at a point where we're spending a vast majority of our of our state federal and local dollars on transferring from producers to consumers. That's not a winning model. No country has ever gotten greater because it had bigger and better welfare programs. In fact, it's always been the opposite. You decline. And so when we think about, and this all has a point. So when we think about 
the idea that somebody says, well, we can't afford to be in both Europe and Asia, that that's a false decision. You know, it sort of sets up a straw man. Bingo. (laughs) Because the whole premise is, you know, we lost, we lost between 70 and $90 billion last year, as in every year to waste, fraud, and abuse in the Medicare and Medicaid programs. Just those two programs. That's more than all of nuclear modernization uh, is going to cost, you know, during the whole process. And nobody bats an eye at, at that that 70 to 90 billion lost. And then we borrowed 1.3 trillion and all of that money went to transfer programs. And nobody seems to care about that. So the the simple fact is until we have a robust capitalist market economy that grows and employs people that then can be backed up by the powerful military that can pursue the interests of that economy, right? That's the whole point of the, the British Navy was to ensure the success of the British economy. That's what militaries are really supposed to do is defend the economy until we do that. And we realize what our priorities are as an actual country, then we're going to have to worry about stupid questions about can we afford to be in Europe and Asia when in reality we can, but at some point we've got to reprioritize spending in this country. And we never have the guns and butter debate. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah. I, I, and I know Curtis is just chewing on his mic. So I'm just going to say two things, Curtis. First of all, thank you, Adam, for backing me up on my comments. Uh, second of all, though, I think the economic argument, although it a good one, and I don't disagree with it, America, if at least we want to be a country, will always find a way to afford to things that are existential threats. The piece that I think is missing here, and I think brought out, and why, why I, I, again, I, I applaud Dr. Mazar for writing this article, is the American public has to understand that value. We're doing part of that through this podcast, but it's really important to see why we need to spend these dollars in this amount, whatever. If it's $2, you know, if government spends $2 on something of my tax money, I'd like to know how it's spent. I can make sure it's done well or 2 million or 2 billion or 2 trillion. It, it, the number doesn't matter as much as what is it? And I agree with you, Adam. So I'll turn it back over to Curtis here because he's, he's giving me the eyeball there. Go ahead, Curtis. All right. So last week I cut in front of you a couple of times. You cut in front of me on this one. So I, I, that's all good. As you said, there's no cutting. Turnabout, turnabout, turnabout fair play, my bud. So, so Mike Mazar brings up in here that, you know, that NATO's success, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, of course, that, you know, it really depends on American influence in Europe, right? And it's being a part of NATO. And I don't think anybody disagrees with that. But let's look at this. And we're talking about money, right? The, the Obama administration was frustrated about free riders in Europe, NATO not paying their 2%, their required 2% to fund the, Obama the or Trump. No, Obama. It started under Obama. In fact, he's quoted as saying that he was dis, he was unhappy with the free riders. And then President Trump comes into office and he carries on that same sentiment um, it, differently communicated, but he kind of brings on and says, look, you know, if, if, if this is an organization that's meaningful, 
then you need to you need to pay your fair share, right? You need to um, absorb this burden. So America uh, has been in NATO for all these years. We still can't, at least today, uh, we can't get Germany to engage its military in anything. We cannot convince Turkey to uh, allow Sweden to cross the final finish line. And we can't get Spain to pay more than 1.1% of its GDP in its military. Yet all of these countries would, uh, would be the first to, to deride an American uh, evacuation of Europe in that sense. As of today, only seven of the 30, now 31 nations in NATO are making their 2%. And, uh, and, and what is the funniest thing about it is the, the highest paying by GDP, uh, uh, member is Greece. And we we go back to national economics. This was a country that was in dire straits economically, uh, within the last 10 years, but they, they still, still yeah, they, they still <laughs> will be yeah, exactly, but they are still paying their burden. And of course the Baltics, um, Poland is is way up there and is going to increase. Um, so, uh, you know, imagine how powerful NATO would be in the middle of a war that's on their doorstep. We still not get cannot convince them to pay the two percent that they should be paying. Uh, in the case of Spain, Spain pays one point one percent of their GDP for their military. They pay four percent for their education and 8% of their GDP for their healthcare. Um, and so uh, you know, these are the competitions and spending and prioritization that you talked about, uh, Adam, from one state to another. And I think every state in Europe uh, will, would have this sort of similar deal. But you would think with um, uh, the war in Ukraine and the threats of all of X, Y, and Z that uh, that we would see this burden sharing. I'll remind the audience that about 10 years ago, Admiral Mullins was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he cited when asked in Congress, I believe, what was the greatest threat to American national security? And his response was the national debt. Yeah. I mean, we're at a point where, you know, the national debt exceeds our gross domestic product in any given year servicing the debt is a problem. And, you know, the, the largest lender to the United States is, you know, the central, it's the central bank. It's, it's the federal reserve. And so whenever you're, you know, the federal reserve prints money, it's called quantitative easing. Whenever it prints money, if you double the money supply, the value of money cuts in half. And so what does it do? Well, it reduces the value of the savings of Americans. So essentially what we're doing now is impoverishing people who have saved their, you know, save their dollars so that we can engage in ever growing redistribution, which in the end doesn't grow your economy and doesn't make people rich. It just makes them poorer. but it, you know, politicians hope what it does for them is that, that it gets them reelected because that's you're buying so at the risk 
at the risk of this getting into an economics discussion, I want to bring us Thank back you. into this NATO conversation here. But they're one because, in the same, Curtis. They're one well, in the they same. Well, they are, and, and I think we've we've done a good job of connecting them. But I want to make one more connection here uh, that, uh, that Mazar brings up that there's a connection here uh, between uh, Europe and the Indo-Pacific theaters that we can't ignore uh, and is another reason why we cannot leave NATO. Uh, or Europe, uh, per se. And that is because of this, uh, now he doesn't state it quite this clearly, but this relationship, this no limits relationship between Russia and China is going to necessarily connect now um, Europe and the Asia Pacific. Uh, But we just had French President Macron in Beijing uh, basically say that the Taiwan issue is not Europe's fight. But here's the thing, and Mazar brings this up, If America enters into a fight because deterrence fails, because we don't do it right, and deterrence fails, uh, and a shooting war begins, and America proper, right, Hawaii, states, territories, CONUS, are actually targeted by Chinese weapons, would America invoke Article 5, as we did in 9-11, or as Article 5 was invoked after 9-11? And I would say the answer is probably yes, which means NATO is in this fight, whether they realize it or not, including France. And so they're going to have to make some real decisions here. Uh, and, and, and let's not forget, French has colonial ties to the Asia Pacific. Uh, the United Kingdom, of course, has ties. Uh, I suspect Macron's uh, statements are really tied towards the whole AUKUS deal and the submarine uh, debacle that occurred with Australia. But nonetheless, um, we see a lot of these, uh, a lot of this sort of um, what I call geopolitical confusion. We're 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 missing the forest for the trees here, uh, in that there is an inherent right sense of good and evil going on right now that is placing not only lives directly at risk and economies directly at risk, but the global order, the global economy at that scale, a war in Taiwan will have a much bigger effect than the war in Ukraine on the, on the global economy. And we need to realize that, um, that, uh, the, that there, there may be an asymmetric interest by both states towards both target states, but there may actually be an asymmetric effect of one war versus the other in, in its impact. And uh, I suspect that anything that ties up China, Taiwan, you know, the largest, the, the largest semiconductor producer, that is their commodity. Japan, the third largest economy in the world, if you don't take Europe altogether. And, uh, and, and other states in the, in these that are going to get involved in here, uh, both from Europe and Asia, this is a massive, massive, economic problem that will impoverish not only many, not only states, but it's going to reset the whole economic order, if not the geopolitical issue. This this is a big deal. So when Admiral Aquilino says, hey, I'm not, I'm not, the the threat of war is not imminent. That may be, but the, but the threat of war is real and it is soon if deterrence fails. So there's always the fail-safe answers. We have to make deterrence work. And as I have always said, so I want to make sure that Jim's happy. It's driven through fear.
we must scare China enough that is that that juice is not worth the squeeze. Yeah, I like that. I, I like that stopping point there, Curtis, because I, I that fits in well. Going back to what I had said before, and Adam, economics notwithstanding, I absolutely agree. That's a long term responsibility we have to look at and 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 agree to be a strong country, strong military, strong economy. Otherwise, uh, we can be take you know people can take advantage of that. But looking and I and I apologize to our audience. I, I messed it up earlier. The Indo Pacific area. Okay, Uh, what Curtis is saying about we are inextricably connected between Europe and the Indo-Pacific area in the same way when Russia and China sort of teamed up here, they looked at it the same way, in my opinion, from a strategy like, okay, you mess with one, the other one. And so it's this sort of Curtis's whack-a-mole theory in reverse. Now, if you go after one, you got, you know, you got to deal with the other. Who are you going to play with? Unfortunately, Russia is already in the Ukraine. So if you want to think of deterrence in that manner, we did not deter Russia from going into Ukraine. We do need to deter it from escalating and building into Europe. And that needs our attention in Europe. So the escalation goes there. But in the Indo-Pacific, I got it right this time, (laughs) Indo-Pacific region, we should be looking at our other partners. And we continue to, it seems like everything I read takes that whole Indo-Pacific region and say, it's about China and Taiwan, but it's not. There are other players I mentioned last week the Indian side of this because they are a big player and Japan is a big player because they have a lot to lose, but they also have a lot to gain in a NATO-like alliance that includes Taiwan. Now, going back to Curtis's idea, we got to bring in the fear of China that something will happen that does not benefit them if they do take over Taiwan, but we can't scare them enough that they say, what the heck, we're going to do it anyway because I got nothing left to lose. That is the interesting balance that I think we can work within NATO to do, to to develop as a strategy. And that's why I go back and look at the strategy. What is the strategy to stop this as a deterrent? Because to me, the war ends up being everyone's loss. Well, we'll see what that is, because I don't know what that strategy is. I'm not seeing it yet. But I'll tell you. I I don't either. That's the question that I hope to get from uh, Mazar's article. But uh, the nice thing is it asks the right questions, but it doesn't give me the answers that I'm looking for. So so that's because my critical review of that. That's because deterrence ain't easy. I wrote this. I solved this problem a few years ago in an article I wrote for Aspie Strategist. And the whole premise here, it's simple. Either allow Taiwan to develop its own nuclear weapons or move U.S. nuclear weapons to Taiwan. They were there for years. We had our we had tactical nuclear weapons stationed on Taiwan up into the 70s. Then when we we when we withdrew them, the Taiwanese started their own nuclear weapons program and Reagan, under serious threat, convinced them to stop that program. You know, I've I've never seen two nuclear powers fight each other, not yet anyways. So a nuclear Taiwan could be the very solution that we need to ensure that China, you know, China makes the decision not to attack Taiwan. And I'll stop there. <laughs> 
Well, very good. I will also remind everyone as we're talking about geopolitical changes, I think this year India becomes the most populous nation in the world, surpassing China. Um, and so now, and then, uh, and we, we would look at that and how that plays out um, as India begins to grow its economy and its influence uh, because of that. Uh, can can you imagine if India and Taiwan made all the semiconductors that we're buying from China right now, mm-hmm. how that would change the economies around? Well, I mean, so they're all, EM, you know, EMDC and a couple of con- companies that produce them all, you know, they're in Taiwan. Those very same companies are now building uh, factories back in the United States, back in Arizona, where they used to all be made. So if we can delay this potential conflict long enough, then if the Chinese do attack Taiwan, we can, we, the Americans can, can destroy all of the semiconductor factories on Taiwan and bombing raids such that there's nothing for the Chinese to have. (laughs) And then we'll be the ones manufacturing them all because the Chinese can't make them nor can the Indians. So, so my understanding is, is that the, the real small ones, the, the, the one, the, the microchips that sit on the head of a pin, they are only made in Taiwan. Taiwan Semiconductor is very careful not to let that technology out because that is the commodity that keeps them alive. And uh, because if it goes somewhere else, then what, what motivation is there to save Taiwan other than the altruistic idea of 23 million human beings? Um, and, and, and right now it's, you know, it's, it's Benjamin's and technology, right? So we're interested in not losing a, not losing access to these kinds of microchips and B not letting them get into the hands of China and having them control, um, the, this commodity of this really, really fine, super small micro, uh, uh, microchip. There are big, big microchips that are built everywhere else. Hell, the Russians are pulling microchips out of their dishwashers to keep the tanks running. Uh, but these are big microchips. You're talking about the really, really little ones that Taiwan makes. And that's what that's their commodity. That's what's keeping them alive. Unfortunately. Interesting. Interesting. This, this return to an economic discussion. It is all about economics. And one of these days, we're going to spend some time on this podcast um, talking about um, uh, the the philosopher, uh, if you will, of Sir Norman Angel, who wrote in his book in 1910 that war would be over because of the interconnectedness of our economies. The grand illusion was yes, a grand failure. Grand it was, but many so, still think about this today. And we're still planning strategies and geopolitical strategies on the grand illusion uh, with, but we, now we call it globalization and we call it, we say that, you know, it's bad business to go to war with one another. It doesn't matter when you're in, when your national interest is something other than business. Well, gentlemen, unfortunately we are out of time. We covered a wide ranging topic. Of course, I, uh, as a hey, graduate, Mike, thanks for writing the article. You know, as a it's it's a it's a rare occasion on this uh, podcast that I get to bring in. You know, I went to uh, I'm a graduate of all of the programs of the von Mises Institute, which is the home of the Austrian School of Economics. So, 
it's a rare occasion that I get to bring in discussions from the Misesians. So it was, it's, it's quite a pleasure. Now, of course, at the end of the nuclear review, we want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. And as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence.